Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Conservative Fringe event from the Institute for Government on uh, Building Back Better. What role uh, can transport play? It uh, kindly sponsored by the West Coast Partnership. And uh, we've got a fascinating panel here this, this afternoon to talk about the role that transport can play in building back better. Uh, there are major announcements on, on devolution uh, anticipated this year with a national infrastructure strategy still to come. And the role of transport in connecting places and supporting the economy is particularly high on the political agenda. So we're, we've got our panel together to discuss what the powers, coordination and, and funding might be needed to make the opportunity, the most of these opportunities for places and how policy and investment can contribute to creating these sorts of opportunities. So uh, I'd like to uh, briefly talk about the fantastic panel we've got. We have uh, Chris Loder, MP, the member of the uh, member of the House of Commons Transport Select Committee, and also the uh, former railwayman, uh, working as former head of trains for Southwestern Railway, uh, among other operators, and the only MP to have been a train guard. He's also vice chair of the All Parliamentary All Party Parliamentary Rail Group, uh, as well. We have Laura Schoef, who's the Managing Director of Transport for the West Midlands, uh, part of the West Midlands Combined Authority, with more than 20 years of international experience in uh, integrated transport and spatial regeneration, and uh, working with the government very closely on their HS2 connectivity package and their, and their strategic transport plan. Uh, we also have Caroline Donaldson, who is the Managing Director of the West Coast Partnership Development, which is the shadow operator for High Speed 2 along the West Coast, who are designing, developing and mobilising high speed operations and the, and the accompanying conventional services. Um, she joined First Group as the Bid Director for Rail in 2010, having held various other positions in the transport sector, including senior positions at Network Rail and London Underground, and is also a Chartered Accountant, holding a degree in Mathematics uh, as well. And finally, uh, we have uh, Simon Jupp MP, who is the Member of Parliament for East Devon and uh, a member of the Transport Select Committee, uh, who was previously a special advisor to Dominic Raab MP and also Tim Bowles, the uh, Mayor in the West of, uh, West of England. Uh, so with no, with further, no further ado, I'd like to first ask uh, each of my panellists uh, a, a brief question uh, when, and then after that move facilitate a discussion after after which we'll take some questions from from the audience uh submitted via our, via our q a function uh over the next 45 minutes uh and i'd first like to sort of turn to to chris loader mp I, and you wrote an article in in the times red box recently on the opportunities to speed up the delivery of, of infrastructure so what are the opportunities that, that we have in the in the uh, post-covid world to speed this up Thanks, Alistair. Um, uh, good afternoon, everybody uh, from uh, the House of Commons. It's good to be it's good to be here, and I'm really pleased to be able to um, uh, participate in this event. Um, so, in in answer to your question, uh, Alistair, I think there are a huge number of opportunities that uh, we are presented with um, as the uh, as one of the consequences of COVID. Uh, passenger demand has uh, completely nosedived. Uh, over the last six months. We are seeing um, through some of our major London terminals anything from 25 to 35 percent of uh, typical footfall. Um, however, interestingly enough, footfall in our um, more regional commercial hubs. Uh, so for me, of course, that would be uh, places such as Exeter, Southampton, um, Dorchester and the like. 
uh, have only seen a reduction of 50%. And that I think is a very small indicator as to um, the sustainability of employment and the need to go to regional centres uh, going forward rather than always having to go to London. Uh, probably about three years ago, we started to see a change in demand, and that was much more going away from a five-day, Monday to Friday commute um, into London um, to a, say, two or three-day commute, but further away from London. And I think um, what we've seen is a, is a speed up or an acceleration uh, of that trajectory. And I now think that we are in a situation where um, the, uh, the strategy going forward has to, has to change. For me in the Southwest, um, the key focus on infrastructure has typically always been about enabling additional capacity into and out of London Waterloo or other London terminals. Um, but it is clear that if the, uh, if the current demand levels continue, the focus needs to completely change. And where, um, in, for example, in my constituency, I have the, the Heart of Wessex line that runs from Bristol to Weymouth through Yeovil and Dorchester. There are times a day where we have a rail frequency every three hours. Um, that really isn't, uh, it wasn't acceptable before COVID, um, and it certainly isn't acceptable now. And we have the opportunity, I think, to, um, to deal with that as an example. And there are many, many other uh, schemes as well across the nation where we have um, uh, where we have small, sensible schemes that could be done quite easily that would offer huge benefit locally and regionally in terms of uh, in terms of the economy. And that's why I think that that balance needs to completely change. I also think we need to see a change in our um, in our approach uh, from government and indeed from the uh, from the sort of the state infrastructure operators. You know, I've lost count of the number of route strategies, route utilization strategies and so on that we've had for certain bits of, of um, the railway in this example. Um, but now we need to switch to action. You know, we've done strategy, strategy, strategy and more strategy and it's changed, but with no action. Um, now is the time for that to change. And I think that needs to be focused uh, in the regions across the nation, not just in the southwest, but across the uh, across the UK. And I think we can therefore um, enable much better um, emphasis on uh, on uh, competition. Actually, um, you know, we're seeing at the moment those who want to travel, uh, say, to Newcastle or Edinburgh from the south uh, will typically take an aeroplane because it's much cheaper and easier um, uh, for them to do it rather than take the train even though it's a little bit longer. And I think that's also um, a good indicator of how passenger priorities have changed. Typically, it's all been about capacity, about enabling people to get on a train if they wanted to. Um, now, I think uh, it's much more about how clean is the train, uh, how comfortable is it? And it's the same, um, uh, same for uh, the bus as well. Um, the, the maybe the frequency and uh, journey time. So I think it's changed massively um, over the last over the last six months, and I and, and I think we have to do this reasonably promptly and reasonably quickly. Um, the nation's railways alone 
um, are costing the taxpayer 3.5 billion pounds a quarter at the moment. So if that trajectory continues, that's 14 billion pounds a year for the nation's railway compared before COVID, where it actually earned money for the exchequer. So we are in the biggest financial crisis that we've seen, but we have to act now to focus on those infrastructure changes, those infrastructure improvements that will enable regional connectivity across the country for us to get out of that as soon as possible. Thanks, Chris. I think there's certainly a number of points we'll, we'll be coming back to there. We, you know, regional connectivity uh, and the preponderance of strategies, uh, certainly among them. Uh, I'd like to move on to, to Laura. I mean, can you what do you think the sort of the main challenges and opportunities we have are for, for post-COVID urban transport, particularly? We've seen dramatic changes in, in urban areas, but what are the, the big challenges and opportunities for them? Thank you. Uh, as the previous speaker said, we saw a tremendous drop off in patronage um, in the immediate um, decision to lock down. Um, and part of that was because we advised people not to travel by public transport um, and therefore patronage just dropped to an absolute fraction and government, as, as was noted, has had to step in and provide financial support. But I think I would say that that support has been a real success. So that has allowed public transport in areas like the West Midlands and cities like Birmingham to continue to run straight through the height of the pandemic lockdown. And that meant that key workers could get to and from work. Uh, and one of the things that we did in the West Midlands was we, re we repurposed some of our vehicles and we in fact are still doing direct free shuttles between some of our transport hubs and our hospitals for key workers. Um, it also allowed, um, uh, it allowed us to operate safely with reduced capacity um, and allow people to be able to be socially distant on public transport. Um, and it allowed us to build back up, which is where we've gotten to now, where we're trying to get the, the levels of service to where they were um, at a, at a pre-COVID level. Um, but the challenges that go forward are, are huge. So we have a deregulated market in the West Midlands, um, which means we have a commercial bus industry. So the, the loss of patronage is a direct financial uh, loss to um, our bus operators. And uh, in that in that way of thinking about it, they have a couple of choices. So um, increasing fares, which is obviously uh, not what we would want at this exact time, or potentially having to decrease um, the services that they provide. Um, and what that could do in, in certain areas is sort of have a double whammy. So those people who were disproportionately um, affected by COVID are also some of the people who are in the most vulnerable uh, jobs. And those are some of the people who suffer from transport poverty. So if we wind up with the reduced service because of the financial burden, um, it could wind up essentially um, disproportionately impacting those people who have already been hurt um, the most. So we, we have a really difficult situation where if, if you believe as I do, as I would, given my job, that that um, public transport is the backbone um, to any urban area and it is what allows people to um, access employment opportunities and education opportunities, retraining opportunities, and all of the things that we will need as we start to build back um, better, um, then public transport has to be there. It has to be there functioning as well as it can. 
really good comments already made about how do we build back public trust in, in public transport? So how do people know that they can use the network? Um, I, I was on the network again today here in the West Midlands. People have their faces covered. The vehicles are clean. The cleaning regiments staff out on um, platform, you know, buses with signs that say this bus is full, leaving and not picking up too many passengers, um, you know, issuing fines and penalties, removing people from the network when they aren't abiding by the rules are all things that we're doing here in the West Midlands. Uh, we still hand out free face coverings to people who don't have them, um, just as much as to make sure that other passengers are reassured and feel safe as, as part of that. So it's been, it has been the most bizarre time. I mean, never in my career did I think um, we would be operating a network. Then I would be telling people not to use that network <laughs> that we've spent our, our lives building up. And then, then we'd have to rebuild trust and um, operations to get it back up to uh, what it can do now. But of course, it can still, with social distancing, only carry, it's different on different vehicles, but call it roughly 40% um, on a tram of what it used to, to take in, in rush hours. So um, we are needing to be innovative and find ways, um, as, the, as has been already mentioned, how do we spread the peak? How do we ensure that we get the most out of the capacity that we have by encouraging people to travel at different times where they're able? Maybe the nature of employment being more flexible will allow some of that. So um, there are huge challenges um, in, in terms of, of, of what it yields, but equally, um, wherever there's a challenge, there's an opportunity. So how do we redesign some of these networks? You know, it's been, um, you know, a lot of bus routes have been bus routes for 25 years. Well, maybe this is a really good time for us to look at how those, um, all the modes work together. So if the buses are feeding into the trains that are running on the fixed lines, how, how do we take advantage of that to make sure that we are providing the right services in the right places to the people who rely on them the most? So I think that is some of, that is some of what we face uh, going forward, but um, it's absolutely un unprecedented. And it's, it's not just an existential crisis that public transport faces, it's, it's a very real one. And while I work in a really dense urban area, um, there are these challenges are felt in rural areas as well, whereas if they're not financially viable, there may be no services at all. Um, and that will lead to, con you know, continued isolation and feelings of loneliness and so many of the challenges that um, as a nation we're trying to address together so that everybody can come through the pandemic. Thanks very much, Laura. That was really, really, really interesting. I think I was really struck by the the, the building, the better element of bit of building back better there. I mean, just moving on to to, to Caroline. Um, Laura discussed you know the role of of bus train integration there and and, and partnership. Um, could you explain a bit about the role of West Coast partnership development in in develop, in delivering these high speed services and how you'll engage strategic partners to ensure you know these new services support those economic growth plans that areas like the West Midlands have. Yes. Well, um, good afternoon, everybody. And again, I'll just check that you can hear me. Yes. Okay. I think you'll probably be asking the question who or perhaps what is West Coast Partnership Development? And uh, certainly we're very much the new kid on the block, if you like. Uh, we're part of the West Coast Partnership, which was launched last December. And the other strand of the business is Avanti West Coast, which you will know as the intercity operator, which connects some of the UK's biggest towns and cities. So West Coast Partnership Development's role is to plan and deliver the high speed rail services that will use the new high speed to infrastructure. 
And you may have heard that role already described as being the shadow operator for High Speed 2. We'll also be working on how the intercity and regional services should change so that everything works together to give customers the best possible service. And in doing that, we'll be working closely with the Department for Transport, High Speed 2 Limited and Network Rail. And of course, we'll also be talking to people and communities all along the West Coast mainline route. The new railway will bring huge benefits, so better, greener travel opportunities and much more freight capacity, laying foundations for the future of safe and sustainable UK transport. High-speed services will give passengers even easier and more comfortable journeys than today and bring people closer together, delivering something the whole country can be proud of. So we're not responsible for building HS2 infrastructure, uh, but we are here to make sure that customer needs are at the heart of new services including modern trains, vibrant stations, better ticketing and simpler fares. We very much share the government's ambition for infrastructure that is joined up. HS2 will halve the journey times between our major cities. It will also encourage businesses to invest beyond London and the South East, giving the regions access to bigger markets and a wider pool of labour and suppliers, bringing them within easier reach of global expertise by shrinking the distance to our major airports. And that'll encourage businesses to grow more quickly, generate new jobs, and so boosting regional productivity and supporting economic recovery. And we don't have to wait 10 years for the benefits. They're already happening. So the CBI will tell you that the approval of phase one of High Speed 2 has led to record levels of foreign direct investment in the West Midlands, driving over 100,000 new jobs. Uh, and just in Birmingham, around the high speed, the new high speed station, uh, the urban generation plans alone will provide 36,000 new jobs and over 4,000 new homes. But our customers won't travel on bits of infrastructure or just from station to station. They'll make real journeys from their homes to meet family and friends, visit new places, work or perhaps watch their favourite football team play. And all of our work needs to be set in that context. So to support that, our team is drawn from two of the world's leading transport companies, First Group and Trenitalia. And it'll include experts in high-speed operations, the British rail market, passenger trends and customer needs. We'll be acting as the bridge between the new high-speed railway and the existing network, making sure the next generation of high-speed services also improves the existing intercity services connecting our towns and cities. And crucially, it must fit seamlessly with other transport projects in the North and the Midlands. And we can't do this alone. The government established us as a unique new partnership model to make sure that this unprecedented public investment in rail achieves maximum benefits for communities and for regional economies. We'll be working with you and with stakeholders in all regions and nations served by West Coast, across all tiers of government, alongside business, interest groups and community organisations. To help shape the future of high-speed rail services, to understand the growth opportunities for our regions, bringing them and their economies closer together and supporting quicker economic recovery. So we're looking forward to working in partnership with you. Thank you very much. Another set of uh, fantastic comments that I'm sure we'll come back to, particularly on that, that partnership point and working working together and, and how that works in practice. I think, and last but not least by any means, I'd like to uh, talk to Simon Jupp MP, uh, and ask him what building back better means for transport policy and investment in rural areas as well as urban ones. We can occasionally a bit, be a bit urban centric in the in the UK. So what what, what does that mean in, in a post-COVID world for rural areas? 
what, what it really means is we need to empower communities and regions to decide for themselves what they want to do to improve their transport. We need to devolve and empower regions to decide the future of transport in their areas because I don't have all the ideas for the rest of the nation or indeed the southwest. Westminster and Whitehall don't always know best. We've already heard from people on this panel this afternoon who work and intrinsically know the regions they serve and they need to be empowered. I used to work for the, the West of England Combined Authority, one of several metro mayor regions in the country. And the whole point of that is to make sure that the region's transport infrastructure works for the region because the people who are working on it understand it. It's not something that comes from inside the M25 bubble. It's something that's understood and consulted on locally with local people. And every region should know how best to reduce their reliance on cars, improve public transport, get more people walking and cycling. Regional and local leaders need to have the confidence to win support for their plans and secure the funding to get it done. Now, this is exceptionally important when we look at rural transport, where someone within, within the M25 bubble is unlikely to understand or know the challenges of getting from Sidmouth to Southland in my constituency of East Devon. That doesn't mean the government should provide a blank check or give away their PayPal password, but what it does mean is the government should provide clear funding solutions to regions, councils and authorities to make sure that regional plans uh, are supported and are put in place. I, I believe that building back better means we need to empower our regions to get the money they need to improve transport, because no one-size-fits-all policy works for our country. And we all know the challenges in our separate regions. To get around the southwest, for example, is extremely difficult if you're getting around by train, for example. The train system that we have in the southwest um, connects you know, the, va the vast majority of the region but misses out other swathes of our communities. Um, equally, it's not easy to get around by active travel in many major parts of the southwest too, apart from in our cities like Exeter. So we need to make sure that um, our regions are empowered, given the funding and the support needed. And that means real, true devolution, not just bidding into pots of money, but real, re real, true devolution to regions to set their own uh, objectives and uh, deliver their projects. Thank you very much, Simon. Yeah, very, very interesting. As an, as an ex-combined authority member myself, I'm keen on the concept of real, true devolution uh, occasionally. But um, that after those uh, that round of introductions, I'd like to sort of come back to, to the whole panel and, and and ask a few few of my own questions before we go to uh, some of the the audience points. And and I'd like to start with uh, with Caroline and. How? What is the role for high-speed rail in a, in a post-COVID COVID Britain? I mean, what you discussed what the, the impact is it's already having in in places like in Birmingham and, and, and the West Midlands. What what impacts can it can it have in in local places after uh, you know in a post-COVID world? Uh, yeah. So, well, I think that's a very important question. Um, I think particularly uh, we're very well aware, as, as Chris mentioned earlier, with the the reduction. Um, in travel that we've seen just recently. Um, I think we're all confident that we'll see a return to travel. Human beings are naturally curious beings. Uh, they like to travel, uh, but none of us quite knows what, what that will look like. But I think um, the, the connections that we need to see between uh, our major towns and cities, uh, and it's not just, as, as, as somebody's already made the point, it's not just about London and those places. It's about connecting up Birmingham and Manchester and Liverpool 
and, and travel north and then onwards into uh, other communities so that actually you shrink the distance uh, between all of, of, of these areas. So having integrated transport, uh, making sure that the high speed services, for example, connect properly uh, with regional services, with bus uh, and other modes of transport is, is crucially important. Um, and I think you know, we, we do need to make sure that some of the, uh, the less well-used um, uh, types of routes for rail uh, get their proper focus. You know, so if you look, for example, at the moment between um, Birmingham and Manchester and, and, and going beyond um, into the Lake District, for example, it's actually quite difficult sometimes to pick up those sorts of connections. Uh, we need to make sure um, that we're considering this in the round and really getting to grips uh, with what the people you know, uh, individually need as they travel um, along these routes. Uh, no, that's a really good point on the on the on that in, that integration point. I mean, Laura, I mean, are, are powers an issue in this this integration discussion? You know, do we need do places need greater different powers to, to build back better, or is the the current suite uh, of powers okay to to have this in, to build the integration for transport? Well, I think it's it's particularly challenging where we've got a deregulated market. I think there's just no two ways about that because um, because because it's more difficult to to do that without leverage. Of course, there are other ways to do that. So if we are going to continue at some level to help fund or subsidize um, those services, again, I, I, I think the devolution argument is really powerful and the fact that it's different in different regions, but as a transport authority, that kind of funding could be channeled through us so that we could use that, we could set uh, requirements around that funding about what we would expect to see in terms of whether that's cleanliness or basic provision or uh, patronage levels or certain routes being protected in exchange for receiving that funding so it's it, there are different ways to look at it so some of it is about powers but equally we can do we can do more with the mechanisms that we're currently using i think to deliver better outcomes uh, Simon, I mean, you, you talked about real, real, true devolution. Are, are, there, are there powers you think that, that places should have that they don't have, or is it is it about the funding question that that you 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 brought forward? Well, it's both, really, isn't it? I think that at the moment we have different devolution deals in different parts of the country. So let's look at England, for example. The devolution deal in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough is very different to the one in the West Midlands, and once again different to the one in the West of England. Why is that different? Um, and why does that mean that some regions are frustrated with their ambition? Uh, that needs to be solved. So we have real, true devolution. Um, equally, some regions need to actually use the powers they've been given. Uh, for example, franchising is an option that many combined authorities have as access to. And yet, I don't think at the moment any of them are currently using it. So there's real um, means and, and, and ways to, to get to a point where actually we can have a better regional uh, devolved transport agenda and actually deliver for the residents who think that this was going to be the answer uh, and therefore uh, actually get stuff done uh, and spades in the ground. As politicians love to get pictures next to spades in the ground, one great way of doing that would be to make sure that devolution deals across the country are more similar to each other. So they can actually do the stuff they are elected to do. Um, and I found it quite frustrating, I think, to see that other combined authorities could do something, but another one couldn't. London seems to have an awful lot of power, but other regions don't. 
And I think every if you had a Metro mayor on this panel, they'd say exactly the same thing to you. Um, so I, I do think that um, the government need to work a bit closely, more closely with combined authorities to make sure that um, the Devo deals they have are fit for purpose and the powers are actually used. Yeah, that's certainly a, a very valid point. I mean, Chris, you 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 mentioned in your your introduction that you felt that that transport investment had been focused in certain ways. Has the government had the right focus on on where it's invested in recent years for transport? Has it been too spread out? It's been too concentrated. I think it's been far too concentrated. Um, but I think, if I'm honest, that's been commercially driven. Um, you know, let, let's face it, that the, the revenue has generally been into and out of London or the major cities. And therefore, it did, you know, it certainly made sense for the government to invest where maximum return is is going to is going to come back. But I think, you know, we didn't all we also did not to underestimate that, you know, London, for example, and, and, and I say this not including um, concessionary travel spend and not in, not including the bus service operator grant, but you know, London has received a subsidy of taxpayers' money of 26.5 pence per passenger journey compared to less than half of that for non-London regions. So, so, you know, whilst London's had a thriving commercial basis at the same in the same way, you know, compared to the West Midlands or compared to Exeter or Southampton or wherever, they've also had more than double the amount of taxpayers' money. And that just doesn't make sense. So um, I know the government and uh, TfL and particularly the Mayor of London have had some difficult conversations over the last few months about the financing of TfL. But I, 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 you know, for me, having a very rural constituency, I mean, Simon also has a very rural patch. You know, we struggle to make the case for vital rural bus services. It's very hard for us. Um, but nonetheless, for us, you know, um, our constituents need that bus to get to the doctors, to do their shopping, to go to the dentist, to go to the hospital. You know, very vital um very vital reasons uh, that they require transport. Whereas, you know, much more public money has gone to um, uh, gone to London that also provides much more leisure travel. So I think the, the rebalancing has to happen. Um, I think government priorities have to change. I mean, we're seeing, you know, with the implementation of the emergency measures, um, I break upon the emergency recovery measures agreements, you know, there is clearly about to be a sea change in respect of um, provision of rail services. Um, and, and that, of course, is the uh, the beginning of um, uh, what I think is going to be major change when it comes to the Williams Review and other things that are that are forthcoming. So, so yes, I think in answer to your question, I think the, the government has to change its, um, its approach. It needs to be much more regionally focused. It needs to be concerned about travel from Bournemouth to Exeter, as far as I'm concerned, rather than Bournemouth to London or Exeter to London. Um, and that's just one example of many, many more um, uh, uh, areas around the country where I think the same principle is valid. Does that mean the government needs to change its approach to how it evaluates projects? You know, they've got mm. the, the tag system, yeah. the, the transport analysis yeah. guidance. Well, Does that well, need to change as well? Yes, and it is changing. I'm very pleased that the Chancellor has already told us about that. And the web tag system that's traditionally used for infrastructure to evaluate infrastructure investment. And um, there are other things, you know, called like the Green Book and, and others that I'm sure, you know, um, colleagues on the panel will, will have heard of and be aware of. You know, they are going to change as part of this levelling up agenda. And it is absolutely the right thing to do. And I can't welcome it. 
I can't welcome it enough. The thing I am concerned about, though, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is that we mustn't live in a fantasy when it comes to investment in transport because we are in a really difficult financial space at the moment. You know, it is it is fair to say without any question that the government investment has been great to keep services running. But when it costs three and a half billion pounds per quarter, you know, it is not sustainable until further notice. There will have to come a point where we absolutely have to make sure that passengers come back with us. Um, the point was made, I think, a little bit, I think was it, um, I'm sorry, either Laura or Caroline made it earlier, where the government's messaging back in July was discouraging of, um, of passengers traveling with us. You know, I, I put that question to the Secretary of State in the House of Commons on the 22nd of July to say, you know, this isn't on, it has to stop, because ultimately we're going to have, um, you know, we're going to go straight into a brick wall uh, in terms of our business model if we're not careful. And I'm pleased that was changed. But it does mean that operators have to um, change how we encourage passengers back, whether it's bus or, or train. And my real concern at the moment is I'm not convinced that the ERMAs, the Emergency Recovery Measures Agreement for Rail, are actually structured in a way that incentivizes the operators to do that. Um, that that is a concern to me, and um, you know we're going to have to watch this quite closely. And I'm sure the select committee will do so in the coming months. Okay. Yes. Certainly. Yeah. Very technical tag uh, and web tag, but always very controversial at the same uh, at the same time. And um, I'd like to come uh, back to, to Caroline. I mean, we we discussed a little bit in our our sort of in, introductions about the role that partnerships can play. Are partnerships more important in a in a post COVID world? Does it? Do we need? Do we are we going to need more private public sector working or, or pub, can the public sector go go it alone? Um, are they more important? I know what well, I do know is that public uh, that public and private partnership is very important. Um, I mean, you know, you just have to look at some of the economic opportunities that we've been talking about. Um, you know, whether whether we're talking about um, high speed rail or in investment in other rail or transport um, opportunities, uh, they're just the enabler, aren't they? Really. Uh, bringing people you know, closer together and providing the opportunity. Actually, what we also need is businesses that have the ambition uh, and are equipped with the skills to really take advantage of, of that kind of catalyst, if you like, for, for economic growth. And, and I think the, the point was made earlier. I also have worked in local economic development, actually, but in East Anglia. Um, and, you know, there's no one that knows the patch uh, like the people who um, are, you know, whether we're talking about local government or enterprise agencies or the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, your people in the local patch really know where those economic pockets are, where the opportunities are, where they're trying to build clusters of new uh, tech developments or whatever it is. So I think it would be, uh, you know, in any environment, uh, you, you can't do these things in isolation. You really have to work together. And absolutely, if we're going to recover from the uh, pandemic quickly, build back the economy, uh, you know, we need to accelerate some of those opportunities. Um, yeah, it's more important than ever before. Thanks. Yeah, that's. I think that that I, I'd like to move to sort of a slightly different angle on that partnership question. Uh, ask Laura. I mean, we had a National Audit Office report out on Friday. I think it was on on bus services outside England that said there's more that could be done for. Uh, joint working between the DFT and other other departments in government around housing uh, and other other things as well. Uh, is there is there more scope for departments to work together and you know to, and talking to to local areas as well as local areas working together? 
Always. I mean, you know, always. It's something that that you 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 never reach the pinnacle of of, of partnership working. But the transport in and of itself, um, I think, is was just sort of fed. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver anything. You you have to be putting the connections in between the places that people want to travel between. So this um, just the return to school was fascinating, wasn't it? So what for for and I'll be honest. In, in my patch, I had never spoken to a regional uh, schools commissioner ever before. Um, but actually, there was no way that we could get kids back to school without starting to think completely differently about about the partnership. We have in the way that we work. So um, I think I, I think it it has to go across all of that. So it matters where are where are people being educated? Where do they want to go to school? Where are new homes being built? Where are those pockets of economic activity? As was mentioned earlier, those might change slightly given where we are. They they may not be all about bringing people into the major city centers and then back out again. So we might need to think about how we redesign networks in order to do that. Now, bus is by far the most flexible mode of public transport that we have. Um, and so and so I think part of that national audit report was, was, I think the bus, my view is the bus industry has been ripe for, for change for quite some time. As an industry, it hasn't necessarily uh, moved moved on or has been as disrupted by technology as other aspects of transport i think that is coming to it so it's probably the right time um, that we look at it but it is an absolutely vital part of public transportation just because it might need to change doesn't mean it doesn't need to be provided and i and i come back again to some of the things about about rural services um and you know they are an absolute lifeline um to people and and Public infrastructure is 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 part of the public good. It's it's absolutely critical to making everything work. So, um, I think there's probably a, a different way to look at how we provide some of those services. It's definitely the right time to think about how we work across government and with regional government and local government differently. Um, what have we learned, and how when we start to build our network back for the future? How are we going to try our best to sort of future-proof what we what we put in place? Thank you. I mean, building on that that point about disruption and and the future, Simon. I mean, the the Transport Select Committee published their their e-scooter inquiry uh, a couple a few days ago. I mean, is there a is there a role for for transport disruption in in helping us build back better? Are e-scooters the answer to, to whatever the question may be? <laughs> um, I think that they, they could be in some places uh, part of the answer. The issue that I had um, and still have with e-scooters um, is that if, they, if they're put into, for example, cycling routes, that will put people off active travel because they are quite disruptive in those cycling routes. Um, and they're not actually active travel because you're literally just standing there going along on one. Um, so the whole point of active travel is to get out there, lose some weight. And I know I could do that myself. Um, I don't think e-scooters are necessarily the answer everywhere, but they could be in uh, urban places in particular. I think at the sight of an e-scooter on a rural road between where I live in Sidmouth and Budley Salton would be absolutely terrifying. Uh, so it really does depend on the area. Um, but that's absolutely a case for disruption. And I think what the government did in the last couple of months, um, and that is empower local authorities to put in temporary cycle lanes, has been a really interesting exercise in how people get around and how people actually get from A to B. And particularly, I, I cover a corner of Exeter. 
And um, Exodus used it to a really good extent that hasn't really had a huge impact on traveling around the city if you're traveling by car, but has empowered people to use pedal power uh, to get around our city. And that's been really welcome uh, and really useful. So disruption, I'm all, I'm all together up for that, but e-scooters perhaps only in urban areas, um, because otherwise I'm, I'm rather terrified when I'm going down the road or anyone else might be on a country lane, for example. Uh, yes, the, uh, certainly a, a challenging addition to the to the road mix. Uh, I mean, Chris, I, I'm, I'm sort of blessed by having two transport select committee members here. I mean, uh, we we have the government saying they're going to build back better, but how how in the select committee can you scrutinise that? What what what's your role in in saying you know you have or haven't built back better? What how how can the TSC uh, you know hold hold the government to account there? Well, uh, you know, Simon and, and myself and, you know, our, our colleagues are in a unique position uh, really on behalf of the nation to hold the government to account for its transport strategy, uh, what it's going to do and how it's going to spend its money. Um, you know, I've been, you know, I, I have been a, a, a critic, I'm afraid, of uh, how government has prioritised its funding over the last uh, 10 years. I, I remember listening to um, a former minister, I think it was Claire Perry at the 2015 uh, conference, um, just talk about um, urban transport and you know the need for rural transport to be featured in that just what well, just didn't happen. And so you know I can easily see how we have gotten to a point where the focus has been on on urban. But as the, as the committee, you know we, we, we're very fortunate with um, you know many varying skills. I mean uh, as I said earlier, I've um, you know, spent the last 20 well 20 years of my career beginning from the front line in the railways. Um, to uh, to be able to contribute those insights uh, and those skills. And I know lots of others have as well. And we will be asking questions and have been asking questions, um, both to the department, to Network Rail, and indeed the operators, because we have all party rail groups, um, a number of them, um, specifically Simon and I are on the um, all party parliamentary group for the South Western Railway, where we have a regular dialogue with the top managing director, uh, and network rail to ensure that uh, uh, passengers receive the service that, of which they expect. But it is, it is, I think, really um, important to note that there is now a priority to ensure that the taxpayer gets value for money, because you know previously, um, you know, take the South Western franchise. Typically, that's turned over a billion pounds of revenue a year, and give or take a bit. You know, 40% of that, so that's 400 million, has gone to the um, the exchequer um, for, um, you know, for, for either spending on infrastructure or redistribution. That's not there anymore. Um, and that affects not just us in the southwest, it affects um, the rest of the UK as well. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a, a priority about um, taxpayer money. There's a priority about scrutinising investment. Um, I think it's totally unacceptable that Network Rail, um, for example, would still, I'm not saying they are, but for example, would still be continuing with multi-billion pound projects to do, you know, flyovers to enhance the capacity in and out of London, for example, when there are, you know, there is no connectivity by regional connectivity between commercial centres. I think that would be wrong. Um, and I think we we are going to have to watch very carefully over the coming six months as to how demand starts to return. 
you know, I mentioned earlier about how demand has basically dropped off the edge of a cliff. Um, I mean, it's been worse for London than that has the commercial centres. But even though the commercial centres have stayed, you know, roughly half, I suspect that's lower yielding um, revenue than it was before COVID. I don't know because I haven't got the stats, but I suspect it was. So I suspect it is. So, so you know, the demand is massively changing. What we were seeing from 2017 onwards, I think, has been massively accelerated. And because because those changes are going so fast, you know, the industry isn't quite sure, uh, and the government's not quite sure what to expect. You know, um, um, Simon and I saw the DFT the other day. You know, that they they aren't sure what demand is going to look like over the coming 12 months. We asked the same of TfL when we had them in to um, committee and the mayor into committee a, a month or two ago and the strategy director also you know couldn't answer that question it's not because they're incompetent it's because we genuinely you know don't know so so you know we're going to have to watch it we're going to have to make sure that the industry becomes much more agile and nimble as well take rail for example just briefly you know traditionally a train planning process requires basically a train company to have a clear timetable in place and go through all the industry systems and bureaucracy a year before it's required. Um, that has got to change. That has got to change because in this COVID world that we're in at the moment, we need to be able to amend the timetable really with two or three weeks notice. Now, strictly speaking, you can do that under certain conditions, but we're not really geared up to do it properly. And so I think the, the agility is going to have to come as a consequence of this change of demand. I mean, I'll ask one final question to Caroline before moving on to some of the uh, the, the Q and A that's come in. I mean, Caroline, how how can we be more agile? As 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 Chris Chris just alluded to, there is there anything that we could do to be to be more agile in 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 the world of transport? Um, I, I'm sure there are many things, um, Alistair, that, that we could do. I mean, I think. Um, there's a good balance, isn't it? I'm sure that uh, the Chris is not suggesting that we, we throw out planning altogether. So the, the question really is actually how do we provide people with a basis for planning? Uh, you know, we've already seen, for example, with with, with high speed, uh, with the um, permission to proceed, that's led to great investment. So what we have to do is, I think, provide an environment where there's sufficient uh, for people to be able to make their plans uh, and make their investments. Um, but at the same time, recognising that we can, you know, I mean, this is this last six months has been the most amazing example um, of how none of us really foresee uh, th these sorts of circumstances. So I think the secret is exactly what Chris was saying, in fact, which is about agility. So making sure that we've got, yes, evidence based decisions, but actually we know exactly where the levers are so that when we uh, see changing circumstances, we can um, uh you know, we can pivot around um, and we've, we've got to have the things at our disposal, whether it's the ability to uh, change the timetable or actually what goes with that is a whole host of practical things, whether you're in the rail industry or, or the bus or any other transport industry. Uh, we've got to have well-skilled people that we can retrain quite quickly um, and, uh, and, and, and redeploy quite quickly as well. So there's a whole host of practical things that goes with that ability to be agile, I think. Alistair, may I just briefly come back to something I forgot to mention, um, and that's about rolling stock. Um, we have seen a strategy in the last three or four years where we've believed, or the government have believed, it's been the right thing to do 
to have fixed formation long trains. So, and I'm and I'm talking about commuter services. So, GTR, the Thameslink services, you know, increasingly fixed formation twelve cars. Um, that has not been the right decision to enable agility going forward. It might have been the right decision at the time, um, but I think in terms of agility, it's not just from that planning point of view, but I think it's from the resources point of view as well to enable us to match that demand capacity, because otherwise we're just going to be carrying around hot air. And because um, you know that hot air either requ requires a diesel engine or it requires electricity from the third rail or the overhead wire, that costs energy and we shouldn't be using energy that we don't need. Thank you, yeah, point very much uh, appreciated. Uh, just moving on to uh, uh, a few, uh, some of the questions that we've had come in. Uh, Laura, I mean, we've had one in from uh, Vasco Basak. Uh, Post pandemic, will there be changes to the design of urban streets and roads to accommodate buses, bus stops, cycle, pedestrians and delivery bays? So. Uh, uh, Simon mentioned some of the the, the, um, uh, the temporary measures that, that have gone in. I mean, do we do you sort of anticipate those changes being types of changes being much more long term? Well, I, I do, I do, and I, and I have to say, it's been some of some of what we've seen. Um, like I said, I was in, I was in the centre of Birmingham today. Uh, I took the train in and just was walking down Colmore Road. They've taken out. Um, a lot of parking and put some additional outdoor seating um, with uh, with flowers and it, it absolutely looks fantastic and it's all helping to discourage people from driving into the city centre and trying to encourage people to travel there sustainably to, to, to stay, to enjoy it, to be outside, to walk and cycle and have active travel. So, I do think it will. It is already changing. You can see that physical manifestation of some of those, um, some of those emergency measures. And 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 I think what's been really helpful throughout the past six months is we've been given quite a lot of flexible flexibility to trial new things. Um, and and Simon's absolutely right. I mean, even in the West Midlands, we've found that. The scooter trial that we're doing is working really well in the city center of Birmingham. It wasn't working so well in the center of Coventry. So we've put more into the center of Birmingham where we can see where it's making a difference. But that ability just to have your hands untied, to trial something, when it works to roll it out, to then trial something else, realize maybe it's not working and put it back is, is exactly that kind of flexibility that we were just talking about. So if this is sort of an accordion and at some point we're here and then at some points we're here, you know, having that flexibility um, has been there. But but I absolutely think that that is, it's a great question. And I think it's actually evident on uh, lots of our streets. And ultimately people will vote with their feet, won't they? You know, if people are enjoying those and they seem to be a, a great benefit to the community, as many of them are, then they'll stay. And where communities aren't receptive or it doesn't work for that community, they make that known uh, to us as well. So, um, but having having had the flexibility over the over the past six months to try things to see what does work has been really really helpful, and I think it will leave a really uh, a good legacy. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a very interesting time for, for transport, certainly. And, and talking about things that, that may be opportunities, uh, we've had Simon. We've had a, a question from uh, Jamie Hodge from Hitachi saying, does Brexit give the opportunity to change procurement to ensure social value impacts and the domestic supply chain of UK-based manufacturers is recognised? 
What they, a great, what a great question. Yeah, what yeah. A great question. Um, <laughs> I, I believe it does. So um, alongside working, I'm not going to read out my CV, don't worry, but alongside working for the West of England Combined Authority, I previously worked with the Foreign Secretary. And one of the things I noticed when we were out discussing, discussing trade deals um, in Europe and, and elsewhere at various different conferences was the real willingness of technology companies to work really closely with us as a nation and actually invest in our country to make sure we do have better technology, um, the latest, snazziest trains that are extremely comfortable, uh, buses and things like that. So I think, yeah, I, I think that Brexit is an opportunity to see investment in this country in a way that we haven't done before to make sure that, you know, we are traveling um, no matter which mode we take in style, because we're never going to get people out of their cars if the alternative isn't exactly comfortable, it isn't something they want to do. Um, so I, I believe that actually Brexit's a real opportunity to get investment back into the country um, and work with people to increase the, the style and the substance of our travel. Thank you, Chris. Are you are uh, here hearing there? Indeed, so. Indeed, so. Yeah. So I just wanted to add to that a little bit. This time last year, when I think we were in Manchester, um, I attended a, a senior industry session. I think it was RDG facilitated, which uh, Professor David Begg chaired. And this very question I put to that group, and I was basically a bit accused of being Trumpesque by saying by saying that, you know, actually, whether we like it or not, Brexit is coming. We will deliver the democratic will of the nation, but we should really consider the opportunities that Brexit offers us. You know, take away the politics of whether you supported leaving or remaining in the EU. The reality is it's going to happen. Rather than spending years sort of saying, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's dreadful, we can't do it, blah, 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 we... we we have to embrace where we're going and we have to understand where the opportunities are. And personally, I'm not convinced that um, that the industry absolutely gets it yet. And you know, I'm not, not meaning that to be, you know, discourteous. Um, I, I think, you know, we have been in a, in a framework, a, a regulated framework that you know, in effect has emanated from the um, EU directives as to how the railways have been structured. That's you know, the basis of the uh, Railways Act um, 2005 and, and previous to that as well. I think we're on fourth or fifth railway package now from, from the EU. You know, the entire railway has been structured by it. Um, but where we are now, I think it means that both COVID and Brexit means innovation is really needed. I think the ability to to really bust the procurement rules that are mandated on us from the EU will mean that we will be able to return to this country more jobs for the manufacture of trains, for the manufacture of rail, um, for the manufacture of buses. I mean, I know we've got some great bus operators here, uh, bus builders here uh, anyway, but I think uh, I think Brexit is heaving with opportunity um, for, for, for the UK. And uh, I should be delighted to hear from Jamie uh, directly, because I know he doesn't quite. Or last time we had that conversation, didn't quite share the share the view. But I, I should be delighted to to uh, chat to him. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, I've, a slightly different point here was raised by uh, one party member. I mean, uh, Caroline, maybe you know you have a lot of experience in in the rail industry. This might be one for you. Uh, how do we protect the non mainline lines? Uh, 
which is a lot of use of the word line there in a sentence. But um, is there is there anything we can be doing to 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 protect them? But they're they're essential to the region, those regions and, and, and communities uh, that you know that you're linking those those smaller areas up. Is there anything else that we, we could be doing to protect them? Uh, well, I think you know it's a it's a testament, if you like, to the success that we've seen in the rail industry in the last twenty years that that people are actually asking that question, having seen you know quite a lot of decline. Um, and I think you, the, the first thing is um, in, in terms of uh, anticipating and, and and working, as we said, with local partners. Uh, we, you know, we need to understand where those opportunities are. We're actually seeing not so much protection of local lines, but we're seeing new lines being opened up. Um, at the moment, there are a couple of good examples in in the southwest, um, and that's that's all about working in partnership uh, and making sure that people are coming together because there are investment funds uh, that are there to to do this. But actually, what you need is is a combination of uh, real ambition from the local um, economy. You need a bit of seed corn funding, um, and and you need a bit of um, intelligence about the way that you design things. So making sure that you know when the local train arrives from the line, it connects immediately with a train that's going on to bigger destinations, and vice versa, because that's what will uh, get people to travel and start using much more um, environmentally friendly modes of transport um, and open up some of those opportunities that we've talked about. Thank you. Uh, I, I think I've got time for a, a couple more questions. So what, I'll, what I will do is I will ask each of you the same question and uh, you can give me a response in 30 seconds uh, or less, hopefully. Um, the government has announced a union connectivity review chaired by uh, the chairman of Network Rail, Sir Peter Hendy, um, looking at the links between you within the UK, uh, within England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, and including the Northern Ireland to Scotland Bridge concept, but also regional uh, regional air connectivity, uh, the and the A1 and road and rail. Uh, what what one thing would you like to see from the union connectivity uh, review? And uh, I, I hope my my stalling in asking that question uh, quite slowly there has, has bought you all a bit of time. And um, so uh, I'll go I'll go to Chris first. who was uh, looking enthusiastic there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about this um, because I think it relates also very closely to the rural question uh, just now. Um, I think one of the biggest constraints that we have at the moment is the franchise map. Um, you know, I, I think it's really sad, actually, that we have got to a point, and I appreciate that the devolved governments like this, and I appreciate that, you know, the devolved areas like this, but the reality is um, if you have a Welsh railway or a Scottish railway or a railway that's um, uh, that's sort of prescribed or mandated by, say, you know, the West Midlands local authorities or, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that because Laura's here, but, you know, the same anywhere else, um, you know, across the country, the focus goes on them. And what happens is that the rural areas in between get missed out. And I'm afraid that's the case with us in Dorset is a brilliant example of that. Um, you know, the franchise map, we're, we're really on the edge of the, the Southwestern and the Great Western franchise. It is an absolute travesty that for years and years, a good number of um, local councillors and others have wanted to have a Waterloo to Barnstable service that actually would be good for um, capacity at Exeter. It would offer more uh, regional connectivity and it hasn't happened because of the franchise maps. That's that's one example. I'm sorry, that's not a poke to, to first group. It's just one example. Um, there are many, many others. Um, you know, the, the Welsh, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, mid Wales and North 
mid Wales, for example, is not connected to London, I think is a shame. Um, uh, I think um, Scotland uh, equally, you know, moving forward, post-Brexit, post-Covid, we are going to have to be, you know, think outside of the box of where these franchise maps have typically constrained us. And I, I really hope, I mean, I, I, I should imagine Sir Peter Henley's got a lot in his hands anyway with Network Rail, but um, none, nonetheless, um, you know, I, I really hope that he gives some real attention um, to that. I mean, I should, I should love a direct train service from Dorchester to Edinburgh. So um, if anyone wants to put that in the mix, I should be very happy to support it. <laughs> uh, a bold move there for a, for a new a new uh, long distance service. Uh, Laura, I'm going to come come to you next. What what one thing would you like to see in the uh, Union Connectivity Review? Um, so so I think I'll go back to devolution. So I think what we've got is different levels of devolution in different parts of of the UK. Different areas have different powers and. I think it would be really interesting if this piece of work looked at the effectiveness of devolution in different areas and came to an assessment of how that could be improved to help deliver that sort of that, that joined up service. I mean, in the West Midlands, I know exactly this, this issue about Wales because obviously we've got some train services that uh, serve us that go actually out to to Wales and how we map that through into our services uh, locally um, is challenging. But actually, um, I, I do think if it, I do think it's it's not beyond the, the wit of man. And as an American who comes from a uh, long time ago now, but from a really large large uh, geography, um, the geography of of the UK is not insurmountable. Um, and so I think some of these challenges, um, whether that is uh, devolution or franchising or or the maps of different franchises, um, it does need to be looked at and to be looked at comprehensively. And I, I would love to see it come to some conclusions about the benefits of, of uh, devolution in, in different areas. And maybe we could see something more uniform. Uh, and uh, Simon, uh, what, what, what one thing would you like to see? I'd like to echo the point of the previous two speakers, absolutely spot on with regards to franchising and devolution. But also we need to look about look at uh, and strengthen the idea of integrated ticketing as well to make sure if you are going from one mode of transport to another, it is seamless. It is not an endless collection of bits of paper or apps on your phone. It is something you can do with ease to ensure that traveling by public transport is as easy, as simple and as stylish as possible. Thank you. And finally, uh, Caroline, what is your what is your one wish? Um, well, rec recognising that um, high-speed rail is, is just one component of a fully integrated transport um, system, you will not be surprised to know. I'd really like to see us fulfil um, the, the, the true potential that high-speed rail can bring to our economy uh, by joining up as far as possible all four nations, uh, recognising some of the challenges with Northern Ireland. But perhaps that's uh, related to the new bridge. Thank you. And I'd just like to conclude by thanking our partner, West Coast, West Coast Partnership Development. Thank you to my excellent panel. And we have our last event of the day at half past six on how to get net zero done. And thank you very much for watching this live event.